The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Celebrating tenure through the community. Created by Carl Sinclair. Changes. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. And in tonight's Behind the Headlines, which we're also streaming through Irish Central, We're talking about history, the traditions, and the authority of the political speech. Now, obviously, you will know that we chose this topic in the wake of events that happened in Washington on the 6th of January of this year. And of course, those events have raised crucial questions about the relationship between speech and action. Uh, But we're also engaged with this subject because it brings together many of the research interests that we centralize in the Trinity Long Room Hub. And these are our interests in history, in the classics, including rhetoric, in language and literature, particularly in in poetry, uh, and in the workings of law and ethics in our public life. So this seemed the right topic and it seemed the right time to bring the subject to behind the headlines. And as always, I want to begin by thanking the John Pollard Foundation uh, for the imagination and the commitment they've shown to our flagship public humanities series. So the right topic at the right time, and we also have the right speakers. Uh, I hope there will be five of them, and I'm not going to take up a lot of time now with introductions. None of them really need a lot of introduction, even though they have long and glorious CVs. Uh, But let me just give them a very brief um, and preliminary introductory remarks. Um, First of all, I'm very proud that joining us live from Washington uh, is Daniel Mulhall. Dan Mulhall, who is Ireland's ambassador to the United States. Uh, Ambassador Mulhall joined the Department of Foreign Affairs in 1978 and has served as a diplomat all over the world. He's also an author, the author of New Day Dawning, A Portrait of Ireland in 1900, uh, and the co-editor of The Shaping of Modern Ireland, a centenary assessment that was published in 2016. And I know that a lot of you who follow Dan on Twitter will have seen just how impressive he is in his range across Irish poetry, uh, literature, history, and culture on that platform. Our second speaker this evening is Martine Kuypers, who is professor in Greek in Trinity College. Martine's research covers the Greek literature of the Hellenistic kingdoms and the Roman Empire, but she also teaches on Athenian democratic ideology and Greek and Roman public speaking, and she's an expert on public speaking, so she's perfectly placed to talk to us about traditions of rhetoric going right back to the classics and bringing the art of speaking up to the present day. And our third speaker this evening is Alan Finlayson. Alan is Professor of Political and Social Theory at the University of East Anglia. uh, And I'm very pleased to welcome to Trinity someone whose work I've followed for some time. Alan took his PhD at Queen's University in Belfast where he lectured for some years before moving to East Anglia. And in the last four years, he's been involved in a number of research projects, which are funded by the UK's Arts and Humanities Research Council. One of these projects is the crisis of rhetoric, 
which brings politicians, journalists, speechwriters, and academics together to discuss the quality of political speech in the United Kingdom. And Alan is also spearheading a project on how digital culture and technology affect political rhetoric and argument. And I know that topic will come up tonight, and I hope at some point we'll have some links for you uh, in the chat on Alan's work. Uh, we will be joined, I hope, by uh, our fourth speaker, um, Senator Ivana Batchik from the School of Law in Trinity. And there she is. Good evening, Ivana, and you're very welcome as always. Ivana, as many of you know, is a barrister and she is the Reed Professor of Criminal Law here in Trinity. She is Senator for Dublin University and she leads the Labour Group in Shannad Aaron. Uh, she is the author of many publications, including uh, Legal Cases That Changed Ireland, which is co-edited with Mary Rogan. And I'm very pleased to welcome Ivana back to Behind the Headlines. And I'm very interested to see how her particular expertise in feminist legal theory will shed light this evening on the protocols and the legitimacy of political speech. And finally, on today, which is St. David's Day, we have Trinity's favorite Welshman, Daryl Jones, uh, professor of literature in the School of English at Trinity. Hello, Daryl. Uh, Daryl's recent research covers popular literature and the literature of horror. He's currently writing a monograph entitled Dead London, the Shadow City in the 19th century. But Daryl is also an expert on the subject of politics and the English language. And I'm, of course, referencing uh, his knowledge here of George Orwell in, uh, in that title. So I'm very pleased that with that expertise and that interest, Daryl can join us tonight to give us his thoughts on how language works or how language doesn't work in the art of the political speech. A quick reminder of our format, each speaker has nine minutes only um, to give us their views. And then we will open up to Q&A and we're very keen to hear from you, the audience, uh, to have your questions and your comments. You can submit these through the discussion function, uh, the Q&A function on your screen, if you're watching on Zoom. Please add your name uh, and also perhaps say where you're writing from. And if you're listening on Facebook or through Irish Central, you can use the comments section. Uh, we'll try to take as many questions at, as possible uh, at the end of the talks. And of course, if you're tweeting, uh, you can use the handle at TLR Hub, that's at TLR Hub, and the hashtag Hub Matters, Hub Matters. And again, we'll put the, uh, the references for Twitter up in the chat function for you. So that's the introductory comments and remarks done. And uh, all the speakers will continue and follow on from each other in turn. Uh, and I will only jump in if they uh, grievously override their allotted nine minutes. And um, so without further ado, I'm very pleased once again to welcome Dan Mulhall to Trinity College. And Dan, please uh, give us your thoughts on political speech. Okay, well, first of all, uh, it's great to be involved in this event. And uh, I'm neither an academic nor a politician, just an observer of the political process over a period of uh, more than 40 years now uh, in my uh, diplomatic career. I've served in um, nine different countries and I've observed the political cultures of those countries. So that's the basis on which I, I dare to uh, tread on this ground. Um, and uh, just to say briefly by way of background before I get on to 
talking about some of the things that I um, have encountered during my time as a diplomat representing Ireland overseas. Growing up in Waterford um, in the 1960s, I don't think I thought very much about um, political speeches at all. I, I suppose the only time I was exposed to a political speech was when the, the local mayor came to the school every year for the uh, for the uh, uh, prize giving day and and you know delivered a uh, you know a speech from his um, from the stage with his robes and his uh, chain of office but these were functional speeches not not speeches of, of high political rhetoric and my father was politically active in Waterford and uh, but I don't think he was ever one for speech making he liked going to meetings and and being involved in the political process but he wasn't really uh, someone that that that, that um, uh, went for speech making um, so I guess like most Irish people of my generation, my first brush with speech making as such came during the visit of um, President John F. Kennedy to Ireland. And uh, I have a vague memory of the speeches delivered at that time by the visiting president, um, even though I was quite young, but I was interested and my father was, was interested in these things as well. And he passed that interest on to me. And, um, but what I remember more was the, you know the way in which they were delivered, and the glamour, of course, surrounding uh, JFK. He was a he was an extraordinary figure, and and I think what he said really wasn't uh, wasn't something that a that, that a nine, that an eight year old would have had any real sort of ability to to analyze or to assess. But certainly the you know the manner in which he he delivered his speeches was was something uh, quite special. It was something that was quite different from what we were used to, you know, in our own uh, environment in Ireland, uh, where politicians where uh, nobody had the, the kind of charisma that uh, that uh, JFK had, but that was that was something that was that that was you know nobody anywhere else in the world really had the charisma that JFK had in those days. And then of course, spending time in Cork as a student and going to the Philosophical Society and and you know giving speeches myself publicly for the first time, although I was a keen debater at school um, in Waterford and took part in debating competitions. But really, when I went to the Philosophical Society for the first time back in the Back in the 70s, I started to realize that you had to craft your, your remarks and so on for a big audience in order to get your message across. And I, I remember at one stage, I, I actually crossed swords with one Charles J. Hawhey when he was out of favor at that time. And he was willing to take uh, to accept invitations from uh, from student societies as he tried to claw his way back up the, um, you know, the greasy pole. Um, this was in the, you know, the early 70s. And you remember what the uh, context was, you know, the arms crisis and so forth. And I remember um, years later when he was Taoiseach and I was a, an up and coming young diplomat, I often wondered, did he remember our exchanges in, uh, in Cork back in the 70s? But I never asked the question, probably wisely, <laughs> and we let it pass. But uh, I suppose the first time I came in, in contact with a, a really powerful public statement was when I went to India in uh, 1980. And remember, I arrived in India just, just um, 33 years after the Raj had come to an end. So the people I met there, many of them, you know, had lived through the Raj and um, some of them had been involved in the freedom struggle for India back in the 30s and 40s. And um, so I, I became aware of um, Jawaharlal Nehru's great speech when India became independent on, on that uh, fateful day in 1947. And it goes, long years ago, we made a tryst with destiny. And now the time comes when we shall redeem our pledge, not wholly or in full measure, but very substantially. At the stroke of the midnight hour when the world sleeps, 
India will awake to life and freedom. A moment comes, which comes but rarely in history, when we step out from the old to new, when an age ends and when the soul of a nation long suppressed finds utterance. And that speech was somehow still resonated in India 33 years after uh, it was delivered when I was there in the early 80s. And people were still conscious that India was trying to fulfill that tryst with destiny. And, you know, having some success and some failings. But, but the speech was sort of somehow part of the fabric of the India that I knew back in the 80s. I, I haven't been in India for many years now, so I'm not quite sure how, how today's Indians would, you know, would relate to that speech. But at that time, it was certainly, you know, a key moment in Indian history, which was celebrated. And, and the words that, that um, Nehru used somehow capture the moment, which is what a speech needs to do. You know, you, you, I think one can hear some Churchillian um, echoes there uh, in that speech. Um, but I, I got, I came to know Nehru's sister, uh, Vijay Lakshmi Pandit, and I, I spent a bit of time with her um, back in the early 80s. And she, of course, could recite W.B. Yeats by heart. And she was a great fan of uh, Irish literature generally, of the theater, of Irish history. She, she knew about, she was kind of told me that her political um, career started when she uh, witnessed as a young woman, you know, the death of Terence McSweeney. So the Irish influence on her life was quite strong. And, and I, it, you know, it made me think that perhaps, um, you know, Yeats's, the influence of Yeats might also have somehow um, uh, come to bear on the words that Nehru used uh, when India became independent in 1947. And then, of course, in Malaysia, um, I was there in the early part of, of the century, this century. And, uh, you know, again, uh, the memory of Malaysian independence in the 50s was quite, was still quite fresh in many ways. And you saw photographs all over the place of Tunku Abdul Rahman and so on. And, and that, that great moment when Malaysia became independent. I won't quote his speech because it isn't up to the standard that you would expect, um, not certainly up to the Churchill standard or up to the standard that, 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 um, that, um, uh, Pandit Nehru set in India uh, 10 years before. But nonetheless, it was a speech that you could feel still in the air in, 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 in Malaysia back in the early part of uh, uh, this century. I was there from 2001 to 2005. Uh, and actually, it, it, it made me wonder, having listened, having become conscious of those two speeches delivered on, on Independence Day, it's interesting to note the fact that there, there is no Irish equivalent you know, there is no great speech delivered uh, by an Irish politician in 1922 to welcome the arrival of Irish independence. Now, the reasons for that are quite obvious in many ways. You know, you had a split over the treaty, you know, you had the partition issue and, and so on. There were a lot of things that were, were not quite satisfactory from the point of view of many people in Ireland at the time. And therefore, you know, the kind of celebration that they could have in India in the 40s or Malaysia in the 50s probably uh, didn't quite meet um, the needs in uh, Ireland at that time in the... Uh, hundred years ago. But nonetheless, it does seem, seem unfortunate in a way that there isn't a speech that, that, that you could point to. I suppose the equivalent for us would be the proclamation of the 1916 proclamation, which still, I think, uh, resonates to some degree. It's not a speech, but it, but it, but it, but it, plays, it plays the role that speeches play in kind of providing some kind of guidance and inspiration for future generations. Uh, other places I've been, you know, Germany, um, there the tradition was very lengthy speeches, very deliberate, very rational, very reasonable, very um, painstaking in many ways, um, and and usually devoid of kind of um, 
of passion um, because I think they had bad experience with uh, how raw political passion can can unleash forces that uh, become uncontrollable. Um, and even, for example, you know, if you compare the Bundestag with the um, with House of Commons, where I went after Germany, uh, my posting in London, um, there it's kind of a in London, it's a bit of a bear pit with a lot of sort of, you know, queuing and froing and heckling. But in Germany, uh, you go to the Bundestag there and the speakers go out to the center of the room and speak from a podium, which makes the whole discourse very different from what you get in, in a more combative parliament of the kind that, you know, exemplified by the British parliament and uh, PM's uh, question time and so forth. Oh, is that... Uh, okay, I, I see I've gone to my nine minutes, but look, I mean, uh, just, you know, just very quickly about, um, about America. Obviously, political speech has become, um, you know, a big issue here. We have a big transition now from the kind of political speech making that was uh, prevalent uh, during the last four years, which was, uh, you know, maybe not rhetorically rich, but, but certainly uh, quite uh, pointed and quite, uh, Quite out there, and now you have a tradition. Uh, you have a transition to a, a kind of political speech making which emphasizes empathy and 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 so forth, and, and is much much gentler and much more going back to the old tradition. But in America, of course, there's a, there's a long history of this kind of partisanship. You had it going back to Jefferson and Adams in the early uh, 19th century. You had it with Andrew Jackson in the 1820s. You had it, of course, in the run-up to the Civil War in the 1850s and 60s, very divisive. You think about the debates between uh, Lincoln and Douglas were very fiery. And then, of course, in the 20th century, you had the uh, debates over Vietnam and the speeches there and the civil rights movement and so forth. So there's a long tradition of, of people having, having quite, quite um, um, noisy uh, discussions between them. But I'll get back to that uh, in the course of the Q&A, but I believe I may now have, have exhausted my uh, time uh, allotted. But just to say that, that uh, just one further point is to say that, that there isn't, I mean, the greatest speech maker in American history is Abraham Lincoln. Clearly, you know, his speeches are engraved everywhere and on his monument and, and so on, and in the hearts of people. I mean, you still hear people talk about the better angels of, of America needing to assert themselves, and that's a Lincoln speech. But the point is, Lincoln greatly admired Robert Emmett's speech from the dock. And in fact, he learned the speech by heart and he could quote from it liberally. So there was an Irish influence on that great American speechmaker, Abraham Lincoln. But I'll come back to some of those points later on. Thank you. Great, let me take over. Um, it is a great honor to take over from the ambassador and maybe to, to latch on to his last point. I always have believed that Lincoln's Gettysburg address uh, was was so well received because it was very short, um, but that's a different point. Um, I don't quite have the connections of the ambassador, but I do have all the big names. So I'm going to start you with Plato. Just as the safest general characterization of the European philosophical tradition is that it consists of a series of footnotes to Plato, the rhetorical tradition is all about telling Plato to go and stuff it but at the same time, perhaps not quite managing to resolve the deep concerns that Plato's dialogues raise about rhetoric. From an ancient Greek perspective, rhetoric is always political in the sense that it is about people using words to persuade other people in the public context of the polis, the city-state. Socrates, the sock puppet of Plato, you might say, has a very low opinion about rhetoric, to put it mildly. In discussion with the famous rhetoric teacher Gorgias, he claims that rhetoric is not a real art or techne, but a bag of tricks, 
device to flatter and deceive the ear, much like cookery deceives the taste buds, or, or cosmetics deceive the eye. In Plato's Republic, Socrates denounces rhetoric as the tool which opportunistic demagogues use to subvert democracy by using democracy's own mechanisms against it. The demagogue gains power democratically. He claims to be a champion of the people and makes wild promises, say, let's take back control or make Athens great again, both very applicable to the politics of the great uh, orator Demosthenes, among many others. Who opposes the opportunist becomes an enemy of the people and is denounced, imprisoned, murdered. Resistance will naturally arise, and as Plato describes it, the demagogue will become suspicious, uh, suspicious about his environment. He increasingly retreats into his own world, where, where obsessions have free reign, and he recruits a bodyguards, a private militia, because he doesn't trust state security measures. And so, to quote my UK colleague Angie Hobbs, rule by the people swiftly degenerates into authoritarian leading of the people, or as Plato and his contemporaries would have said it, it becomes tyranny. After Plato, his people Aristotle took up the challenge of reconciling concerns such as these with the reality that political rhetoric was there to stay, and that rhetoric was becoming the central discipline of the educational curriculum that trained elite men for public life, the status that it has only very recently lost. Where Plato's dialogues sent the message that politicians who use rhetoric, as opposed to philosophers, neither have the knowledge nor the required ethical foundations to use the power of speech responsibly, Aristotle embeds rhetoric within his own philosophical system, making it into a legitimate counterpart to dialectic, the art of dialogue or discussion. Both discussion and public speech, Aristotle posits, aim to persuade, and then public speakers will not be able to achieve this aim unless they have a working knowledge of logic, ethics, political science, psychology, linguistics, and other disciplines, so that Aristotle's handbook, The Art of Rhetoric, almost reads like a philosophical primer. Aristotle, in fact, seems to address Plato's concerns by reformulating rhetoric as a sort of philosophy light, and the difference between a good political leader and a philosopher is a difference of degree. Among the more practical parts of Aristotle's Art of Rhetoric, which have remained central to rhetoric as a discipline to the modern day, is his division of the so-called means of persuasion into three categories. The first category is logos, logic or reason, logical argument based on the facts of the situation. The second is ethos, the character, or as modern teachers of rhetoric would frame it, the authority of the speaker. The third is pathos, emotion or passion, as the ambassador just called it, devices and moves which elicit an emotional reaction from the audience and so persuade them to support a speaker's point of view. In Aristotle's thinking, logos, logical argument based on facts, is the principal tool of persuasion, and this is perhaps where his system goes most spectacularly off the rails. Let me illustrate this with an example from English literature, which even Daryl have generously allowed me to claim. In Shakespeare's tragedy, Julius Caesar, Mark Antony, Caesar's loyal ally and henchman, delivers a vigorous speech at Caesar's funeral after Caesar had been murdered on the Ides of March by Brutus and other senators who believed that he had effectively become a tyrant. The scene was written by a playwright steeped in rhetoric, working from the English translation of a French translation of a Greek literary text based on Roman sources, namely the biography of Caesar by Plutarch, 
who was paradoxically a rhetorically trained Platonist. Antony's speech is perhaps the most unabashed literary example of political incitement as the Roman general rouses the Roman populace against Caesar's murderers by pulling out all the tricks in the book. It therefore does not come as a surprise that the Roman citizens' reaction to the first half of Antony's speech can be mapped seamlessly onto Arist Aristotle's three means of persuasion. Shakespeare's first citizen says, methinks there is much reason in his sayings, logos right there. The second citizen responds, if you consider rightly of the matter, Caesar has been done great wrong. And a little late, later he says about Antony, poor soul, his eyes are red as fire with weeping, pathos or emotion, tick the box. The third citizen finally insists that there's not a nobler man in Rome than Antony, an argument of character which matches Antony's own highly effective character assassination of Brutus in this speech by constant repetition of the words, but Brutus is of course an honorable man. In this scene, and I would argue in general, the logic, the logic and the facts are the least effective and most easily countered means of persuasion. The argument that Antony uses is that Caesar could not possibly have wanted to become a tyrant because he did not accept the crowns, the crown which was offered to him in what was clearly a staged display of modesty. More generally, and this gets me to my key point and to the end of this rumination, facts do not speak for themselves, but they must be spoken for. And this is where the problem of authority comes in and where Antony's strategy in this speech becomes very understandable. Ultimately, the problem with political speech at present would seem to be that we are not dealing with an open-minded audience of citizens who are highly invested in their civic responsibilities as stakeholders in the social project that was democratic Athens or Republican Rome as Aristotle and Cicero, the archenemy of Antony, seem to have imagined. We're not dealing with a public debate in which voices and counter voices are given an equal hearing, but with a one-sided messaging through various verbal media, to a supporter base, which has already decided to take a specific version of the facts, logos, as true, based on the authority of speakers, whose authority is largely based on their ability to play on the desires and fears of their audience, pathos, rather than any specialist knowledge or respect for those who have, in fact, learned a profession, become doctors or environmental scientists. The way forward may well in some ways be a return to Plato and to Cicero, uh, to Plato and to Cicero, Quintilian and other ancient educators. Plato was not a great fan of democracy, of course, but he did understand the central importance of discussion and debates in society. Quintilian, meanwhile, defined the orator as a good man who is an expert in speaking. While we may want to get rid of the man here and of the very Roman connection between public speech, virtue and manhood, we do need to think about how we educate responsible, rhetoric literate citizens, good citizens who can engage with and engage in public discourse beyond the common section of the journal. Thank you, Martine. That was great. And I'm going to pick up on some of those themes um, in my remarks. Um, I just say I'm really pleased to be here. I'm sorry I can't be in Dublin, but I'm delighted to be taking part. Uh, not least because uh, I didn't 
wasn't thinking about oratory when I was living in Belfast in the 1990s, but I did take the opportunity while I was there to see perhaps not as great speakers as the ambassador has seen, but I did see uh, Ian Paisley give a speech. I saw a very young um, Arlene Foster give a speech. I saw John Hume, the great John Hume, Jerry Adams. I also saw Mo Molum, who was Secretary of State at that time, and even Bill Clinton, who came and turned the Christmas lights on when I was living in Belfast and gave actually a pretty extraordinary speech. Um, and although, as I say, I wasn't studying things at, those at that time, it was those experiences that got me thinking about what was really going on with these speech occasions, why they happened, uh, what they were for, what made some speeches great, what made me find some speeches quite powerful, even when I disagreed with them, uh, and what their place was in, in, in politics and political life generally. And that's what I've been thinking about uh, for the last 20 years, really, as to haven't quite answered it, but hopefully might get a bit closer to it after discussion today. Uh, so now Martine has just talked about Julius Caesar, so I'm going to take another Shakespeare play to explain uh, where I come from on this, uh, and that's Coriolanus. So in that play, probably most of you know, but in that play, Martius, he's a military hero, gets made into a political leader, Coriolanus. Uh, and of course it's Shakespeare, so everything goes wrong quite bloodily, quite quickly. He's banished from the city, fights for its enemies, and ends up getting assassinated. Now, some of the critics of that play think it's about scheming politicians, the, the tribunes of the plebs who manipulate the people against this great noble military leader. I don't think that's right. I think Coriolanus is about a really bad rhetorician. It's the tragedy of poor oratory. Because the key point in that play, when Coriolanus has been made the leader, and he has to come out and give the customary speech to the people accepting office. It's his inaugural address, if you like. Uh, and he doesn't want to do it. He thinks it's beneath him doesn't want to have to be forced to stand in front of all these horrible plebs and he's not very good at speaking either the play tells us that he speaks in bolted language i'm not sure what that means but it sounds like the words run away from him he can't do it so in the end he gets on the stage and he insults the people and it's because he can't persuade them can't give them reasons or do a performance that shows them why they should accept him as leader that they can't accept him as leader and everything goes to hell uh, in the polis so there's lots of lessons in that play, but one of them, I think, is that contrary to common understanding, politicians don't necessarily love speaking. We often think they do. They like to lord it over us with their grand speeches and fancy words, and we have to sit there nodding along. Actually, quite often, politicians find it a real trial. They don't want to do it. Famously, Tony Blair, in his memoirs, talks about prime minister's questions, making him physically sick every week. It's one of the reasons why I reduced it from twice a week to just once. Because it seems to me that actually in democracies, speech isn't something we are subjected to by politicians. It's something we make them do. We oblige them to do these speeches. They owe speech to us as one of their conditions of being in power for a brief period of time. And we even have set moments in our constitutions requiring them to do that. Inaugural addresses in the US and State of the Union speeches. In the UK, Prime Minister's questions that Tony Blair didn't like speeches to conference, party conferences they have to give every year. In Ireland, the door, you have leaders' questions, you have various ceremonial moments where the president has to give certain kinds of speeches. And those are often complicated, risky, anxiety-inducing moments for politicians. Just think about what would happen if a president, a prime minister, or a Taoiseach couldn't or wouldn't do those speech occasions. If they didn't turn up or turned up and were unable to speak, they wouldn't stay in power very long, which is exactly what happened to Theresa May when she was prime minister in the UK. There were lots of reasons why her premiership came to an end, but definitely one of them was that she really couldn't do those speech moments. And when they went, and because one went spectacularly wrong, her leadership position began to falter. 
So I think if the question is why we have these speeches and what they're for in politics, then I think there are, well, there are three answers, obviously, because it's rhetoric, it's got to come in threes. But the first of those is that it's a way in which we control politicians. We force them to justify themselves before us, like we, the Romans tried to justify Coriolanus in Shakespeare. And that also means that they have to adapt their speech to us. If they're going to speak to us, they have to do what rhetoricians do, which is, as Martins alluded to, they have to adapt to the audiences that they're speaking to. Uh, Cicero says a great orator has to, in part, know the history, the morals, the ways of life of the community that they're addressing. And they have to show that that's the ethos, the character they have to perform. And making them speak to us is a way of checking, well, do they know who we are? Do they actually care about us? Do they have any understanding of us as a people at all? So that's one reason why we have to have these speeches. A second, I think, has been alluded to very clearly by the ambassador already. The great speeches aren't just comments on events. They're part of great events sometimes. Uh, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream isn't just about civil rights. It's a central part of what the civil rights movement was. It was part of how it happened. It gave it definition and it became part of the history of America and of the way in which it understood its politics and its history and its attempts to, to create true racial equality. And that applies very often in politics, not, not just in the great occasions of uh, something like civil rights. Often events happen and we are not sure as a people how to react to them. Terrorist attacks, natural disasters, poverty and economic upheaval. How should we feel about it? What are we supposed to do? Speeches can dramatize ways of thinking and feeling about those kinds of events and orienting us to them so that we can act in response to them. Orators have to take up some of the kind of themes and ideas that are already within the community, the ways in which it feels and thinks about things, and apply them to matters at hand. They have to tell us what events now are like, how they're like events in the past. In this country, it turns out a pandemic is quite like World War II, and coming out of it is quite like building a welfare state. But in a healthy rhetorical culture, you don't just have one story about how, what events are like, you have a debate, you have rival versions of how we might, might look at our past and feel about things in the present so that we people can make a choice about who we're going to be in this moment and what we're going to do in relation to it. And thirdly, importantly, of course, political debate is about taking decisions. And it's about taking decisions that lead to some course of action, actually doing something that we think is going to be better for us in the future. And that's how the decision isn't just an academic exercise, as we say, it's about something that maybe involves action by all of us. If it's about lockdown, say, or climate change or racial equality, it's an action that we all have to, in some measure, carry out. Stay at home, change the way we use energy, think about how we treat each other. So political speech rhetoric is vital if people are going to be convinced and take part in political decisions and motivated to change the ways in which they think, behave and respond to the situations they find themselves. If we didn't have that, politics would just be force and it wouldn't be democracy. So for all those kinds of reasons, I think oratory is really an absolutely necessary, unavoidable part of democratic politics, not something to be afraid of or worried about. In fact, it's something that we citizens have a right to. We have a right to be persuaded, to be given reasons to follow the things that political leaders are saying and a right to be moved by them or not moved by them, to agree or to disagree. We have, in other words, to pick up on St. Martin said, rhetorical citizenship. Part of being a citizen is having certain rhetorical rights to be spoken to, to be addressed in our own language, in a language we can understand, adapted to us, given reasons, but also rights to respond, to take part if we want to, or just to judge and decide on our, in our own minds, or to applaud, to cheer, to jeer, to heckle, 
the absence of the heckle in contemporary politics is a great loss in my view. An important part of democratic life is heckling the, the leader speaking to you. So I think that part of what's not working in contemporary politics, from my point of view, is that our rhetorical rights are too often not being respected. Our rhetorical citizenship is being taken for granted. The occasions when politicians give speeches are too staged managed, too scripted, nothing candid about them, nothing spontaneous or lively or of the moment and of the situation about them. There's no heckling. There are no surprises in what is said. And often those speeches themselves just aren't uh, very good because too often they're written, well, not really written, they're compiled by the dead hand of the political marketing people, designed to fit some kind of imagined ideal audience produced by the surveys rather than the real audience that's in front wanting to know what's going to happen, how they might think or feel about situations they're in, what they might do about them. I could give you lots of examples. I don't want to pick on Keir Starmer, leader of the opposition in, this, in the UK, but he gave a speech the other week that was billed as his great statement of his political philosophy, uh, which included one, one line leaped out at me, included the line he urged. He said that the country had to go forward to a future that's going to look utterly unlike the past. Somebody wrote that line and then delivered it, thinking that that would be something that would move and engage us. No wonder people aren't interested in politics when that's its promise of the future, that it will be a bit different from the past. But it, perhaps that didn't matter for Keir Starmer because of course, on the whole, most of us don't really ever hear, see or watch a political speech not at great length these days because part of the, what also compromises our rhetorical citizenship is that the media pre-digest the speech for us. They give us the Cliff Notes version of it. Instead of being active rhetorical citizens, we make judgments, they're making judgments, we're just passive audiences of journalist judgments. So just to, to wrap things up then, while we sometimes say we want less political talk and more political action, we need more political talk so that we can have better political actions. And because we haven't got that, it's in that void that the kind of rather grand, dramatic, hostile rhetorics have grown up, the kind of populist speech that at least appears to speak to the people, gives us stark definitions of the situations we find ourselves in and gives people something to do where unfortunately that might just be being rude online or protesting about lockdown in Dublin city centre or storming Capitol Hill. Those are symptoms, I think, of a crisis of rhetorical culture. And we need to think about how we can revive it, how we can use technologies to create new stages to reinvigorate rhetorical culture and give people back their rhetorical citizenship. Okay, um, I'll take that up. Can everyone hear me? Yeah. Um, good evening all. Thank you, Eve, for the kind invitation to be here. Um, uh, delighted to follow on from those great speakers, although I'm going to be disagreeing with uh, a good deal of what Alan said. Um, and I should say, uh, Alan, that uh, if you think the art of heckling is dead, uh, you should come and sit in on the Irish Shannad or indeed the Doll Chamber, where you'll find it's very much alive and kicking. And indeed, I've just come from a very lengthy day in the Shannon Chamber debating the concept of mandatory hotel quarantine with the health minister. And I was robustly heckled uh, by uh, the government senators. Uh, and indeed, I heckled back. So, uh, so heckling is alive and well. Um, I love the concept of rhetorical citizenship. And, uh, and, you know, I'm scribbling ideas furiously here because as a merely practicing politician who's never been trained in delivering a speech, uh, it's really exciting to hear ideas and uh, and indeed I, I, it occurred to Eve this is the first time I've ever been asked to give a speech about making a political speech so I'm delighted to do so and I think it's a really useful um, uh, uh, evening, uh, useful event. 
as with all the events in the Trinity Long Room Hall. Um, I know we have nine minutes. So as Alan said, one thing I do agree with, the, the power of the, the, three, the, the troika, the three. Uh, so I want to speak on three things. First, on personal reflections on speeches and great speeches and so on. Secondly, on the seduction of the soundbite in the current political climate. And thirdly, just a little on the legal framework, just reflecting on that freedom of expression and picking up on some other themes. So first, in terms of uh, my own personal uh, reflections on speaking and uh, political speaking, as I say, I've never had training, but when I was running for election in the Students' Union many years ago in 1989 in Trinity, my predecessor, Mark Little, now a very uh, prominent media uh, figure himself, gave me the following advice. He said, when you're speaking to a room full of engineering students, um, or indeed any others, but they were the toughest crowd, he said, uh, grip the podium with both hands and scan the audience with your eyes. And no matter how scared you are, that'll cover it. And it's advice that has stood to me ever since. The difficulty, of course, with speaking on Zoom or on, so on online is one cannot read the room in the way that uh, you can in, in real life. And therefore, we don't know if we've lost the room. And when you're giving a political speech, it's all about reading a room and the perils of losing a room. Um, I have been trained as a barrister in cross-examination. And in cross-examination, we're always told, never ask the question too far. The final question is so tempting, but which can utterly trip you up. And similarly, in political speech making, there's always a danger in just going that little bit too far. So who's got it right? Well. Like um, thinking about what the ambassador said, and again, I don't have that uh, breadth of experience of listening to great speech, but I have uh, speeches. But I have been lucky enough to hear speeches from Clinton, from Obama, for, indeed from Joe Biden when they visited here. But perhaps the most memorable speech from an American visiting politician I've heard is was that of Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House of Representatives, who spoke in the Irish Dáil to a joint sitting of, of TDs and senators in 2018, and who gave an absolutely impassioned address. Uh, but uh, folksy in style, but which masked real power. And she said at one point, it's a direct appeal to Boris Johnson and to the British government to saying to, uh, to, saying to them that they had to hold firm to the Good Friday Agreement. And we all realised that she had real power backing her in that. Um, I mentioned her speech in particular, because what was really striking about that for me as a woman was how rarely women uh, are regarded in history as making having, having made great speeches. And politics is highly gendered, it's highly male dominated. In Ireland still, only 22% of our TDs are women. And yet that's a huge, that's the best we've ever been. It's a huge advance. And when I was first elected in 2007, the gendered nature of Irish politics here really struck me. I was given a couple of books at the time in 2007 when I was first elected. Simon Seabag Montefiore, Speeches That Changed the World, and Conor O'Cleary. Ireland in quotes. The Montefiore book has only one Irish person out of 48 speeches, and that's Devadera, and only seven women. Conor O'Cleary's book is much more engaging, and it has multiple quotes in it from different, uh, different Irish figures. The one that struck me as most, uh, a most uh, the speech that I love best is that of Constance Markiewicz. And I got uh, Catherine McGuinness, herself a great orator, to read it in the Dáil Chamber in 2008 on the 90th anniversary of women's achievement of suffrage in Ireland. Mark spoke in 1915 to the Irish Women's Franchise League saying, and these were the words Catherine McGinnis spoke again in the Dáil in 2008. Mark said, don't trust your feminine charms, but dress suitably in short skirts and strong boots, leave your jewels and gold wands in the bank and buy a revolver. So that was her exhortation to young women of Ireland seeking the right to vote.
Uh, and that's, again, a powerful piece of oratory. It's also a soundbite. I want to just move on to the seduction of the soundbite in an age of social media. And uh, looking at just how things have changed over the decades of political speeches, particularly since the foundation of the state here, we see that the average soundbite has reduced, has, has the average portion of a speech, and here I do agree with Alan, the average portion of a, of a political speech that's reproduced in the media has reduced greatly. Um, one study found that while in 1968 the average soundbite of US presidential election coverage was more than 43 seconds long, it has now plateaued at between nine and seven seconds. And of course, with the advent of social media, we as politicians are advised to keep our uh, posts uh, and uh, any social any videos we're uploading to 30 seconds or less. And of course, with Twitter, we have to keep our posts to just 280 characters per tweet. What does this do? Well, there's a plus. It keeps us more concise. Um, and it means that we can try and condense thoughts, perhaps in a more um, formal way. However, the big problem, it misses context. And I'm grateful to Chloe Manahan in my office who gave me a really good example of this. A politician or, uh, or legislation may say in their social media accounts, I am absolutely opposed to child poverty. Great soundbite. But you, without the context, you don't know whether this person has a comprehensive plan to provide free school meals and GP care for children or whether they're calling for bringing back the marriage bar and keeping women out of the workplace. So context is lacking. And without context, we don't know the true substance of the political message. And while the soundbite is very seductive because it gets us more likes, the algorithms are much more attuned to the powerful soundbite. It's memorable. It, 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 you know, we all think of quick soundbites. Uh, I asked a few people today, one of the soundbites that people came up with was Leo Varadkar going to Downing Street for the first time and saying he felt it was like being in love actually because when he went up the staircase. Uh, so these are the sort of soundbites we remember. And yet they miss and they lack the substance of the context. And that brings me to the third part of, uh, of the third aspect, which I just want to speak very briefly about, which is the legal and constitutional framework within which we engage in political discourse. And in Ireland, we have a freedom of expression that is heavily curtailed in, uh, in with, even within the constitution. So Article 46 one is our guarantee of freedom of expression, but it is much more restrictively framed than the freedom of expression in the US Constitution, or indeed in Article 10 of the European Convention on Human Rights, which is much more robust protection for freedom of expression. Our freedom of expression may be quite strictly curtailed. That's not necessarily a bad thing. In democracies, uh, in democracies, we always see a need to uh, place restrictions on free speech, for example, limits on spending and political advertising, essential to ensure no abuse of power. And indeed, from a left-wing or socialist perspective, as where I come from and my party comes from, freedom of expression must always be seen in the context of power. And we must always be mindful of the need to prevent abuses of power. And therefore, we push for things like hate speech, albeit this is a very difficult thing to frame. So I suppose, I, you know, that brings us finally to Trump when we, and we mentioned hate speech. And uh, when Donald Trump was banned from using Twitter and Facebook and so on following the riots and his role in inciting violence and being seen to incite violence, this move hailed as a watershed moment. But it carried dangers too. The social media platforms that banned him were acting as commercial and private entities. And in curtailing his speech as a politician, it does beg questions as to their power, the power that they have in relaying the speech of politicians and of legislators to a wider audience. And I suppose it exposed again the danger 
for me and for all of us who've been practicing politics, it exposes the danger of uh, engaging too much in sound bites, however seductive they are, and in pushing for more, uh, the relay of more information on social media at the expense of losing your context, losing the substance of policy. So I think, you know, much of the real political discourse and the really substantive discourse takes place in chambers like the chamber I was, I've just come from today, where we had a to and fro of debate about mandatory hotel quarantine and zero COVID, where we engage in debate on this. Very few sound bites were uttered. Uh, there's very little dissemination on social media, much as some of us have tried to tweet from it. But, you know, that's where politics really happens. And perhaps we shouldn't, perhaps it's, it's you know, undermining our rhetorical citizenship to be too dependent on sound bites and too dependent on social media platforms. Perhaps we should be pushing through in any form we can, including here, to um, to move back to seeing oratory as as uh, as something that's engaged in in a much more collaborative way, rather than in this very grand uh, measure of advocacy. Uh, it was Mario Cuomo who said, "We campaign in poetry, we govern in prose. Well, we legislate in prose, and often the soundbite is lacking, but the substance is there." Thanks, Eve. I think I may have gone a little over, but I hope I've stuck fairly to time. Good evening. Uh, happy St. David's Day to you all. As the 20th century drew to a close, uh, we were told that the political speech delivered on a charged occasion by an eloquent orator before a large crowd was a redundant discursive form in the age of mass media. In the 1992 general election, the Labour Party leader Neil Kinnock, a political orator of the old school, was dismissed in the press as a windbag, or worse still, a Welsh windbag. Apparently it's still okay to be racist about the Welsh. His opponent, the Conservative Prime Minister John Major, famously campaigned standing on a literal soapbox, giving speeches through a megaphone, and this was portrayed as endearing, eccentric, and old-fashioned, a charmingly retrograde gesture from a politician who deliberately cultivated a sense that he really belonged in a 1950s Ealing comedy, complete with gnomes, circus performers, crickets. The great age of modern political oratory, we might have thought, was born with Abraham Lincoln and died with Martin Luther King. But we were wrong. When Barack Obama, then an obscure and very junior senator from Illinois, first came to prominence running for the US presidency in 2007, what shocked many people was that he was an orator of the kind US presidential politics had not seen since Kennedy. His dazzling rhetorical skills helped to create an intoxicating sense of hope, purpose and unity, which was a decisive factor in his election victory. Yes, we can. This was the poetry in which we were told political campaigns should be conducted, as we've just heard. Rather less exalted, but scarcely less effective, Donald Trump campaigned twice for the presidency with a series of horrifyingly memorable rallies in which he delivered versions of the same stump speech night after night. Crooked Hillary, Lock Her Up, Sleepy Joe, Radical Left-Wing Democrats, Hoax, Witch Hunt, Rigged Election. Just a few weeks ago at Trump's impeachment trial, I heard Congressman Joe Neguse give what might be the best political speech I've ever heard. 
So political oratory, even in an age of Twitter soundbites, as we've just heard, is still very much with us and very potent. Not all political orators are populist demagogues, but some of them are, and these are the most dangerous. As a way of thinking about its power and danger, I want to take us back now to the writings of George Orwell, the great modern literary analyst of political speech. As Christopher Hitchens once famously said, Orwell matters, and in an age of populist oratory, he matters as much as ever. Orwell came to consciousness as a writer in the great mid-century age of political rhetoric, the age of Hitler and Churchill. He was scathing about the British intelligentsia's initial dismissal of Hitler as that screaming little defective in Berlin. In his great political work, The Lion and the Unicorn, Orwell wrote, and I quote, one cannot see the modern world as it is unless one recognizes the overwhelming force of patriotism national loyalty. As a positive force, there is nothing to set beside it. Christianity and international socialism are weak as straw in comparison with it. Hitler and Mussolini rose to power in their countries largely because they could grasp this fact and their opponents could not. Make America great again. USA, USA. In his essay on, on Rudyard Kipling, Orwell invokes the category of what he calls good, bad poetry, generally sentimental, sententiously moralizing, or patriotic, and above all else, readily memorable, and most importantly, platitudinous. Like all political sloganeering, Orwell believed, its power and danger was that language took the place of thought, other people's words did our thinking for us. As he wrote in his essay, Politics and the English Language, there is real danger in throwing your mind open and letting the ready-made sentences come crowding in. They will construct your sentences for you, even think your thoughts for you to a certain extent. And at need, they will perform the important service of partially concealing your meaning, even from yourself. Churchill, Orwell believed, was particularly effective with a spot of oratorical good-bad poetry. It was the Victorian poet Arthur Hugh Clough's poem, Endeavour, that Churchill famously read powerfully and memorably in one of his war broadcasts. Say not the struggle naught availeth, the labour and the wounds are vain, the enemy faints not nor faileth, and as things have been they remain. If hopes were dupes, fears may be liars, it may be in yon smoke concealed, your comrades chase in now the flyers, and but for you possess the field. For while the tired waves vainly breaking seem here no painful inch to gain, Far back through creeks and inlets making, come silent flooding in the main. And not by eastern windows only, when daylight comes, comes in the light. In front the sun climbs slow, how slowly but westward look, the land is bright. This, Orwell believed, is what people who don't care about poetry thinks, think good poetry sounds like. And he added sourly, but not even Churchill 
could have got away with it if he'd quoted anything much better than this. There was a whole category of this kind of good, bad poetry, Orwell thought, which was particularly appealing to political orators. Kipling's If, of course, if you can keep your head while those around you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. Or W.E. Henley's Invictus, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. Or this, with which I want to close. This is Henry Newbolt's Vitae Lampada, The Torch of Life. And it's powerful stuff. It's very powerful stuff. So be careful. For no sooner than in stanza one do you find yourself applauding appreciatively for a spot of good sportsmanship on the cricket field than the next thing you know, in stanza two, you find that you've signed up for a disastrous military campaign in the Middle East. There's a breathless hush in the close tonight. Ten to make and the match to win. A bumping pitch and a blinding light. An hour to play and the last man in. And it's not for the sake of a ribboned coat or the selfish hope of a season's fame. But his captain's hand on his shoulder smote. Play up, play up and play the game. The sand of the desert is sodden red, red with the wreck of the square that broke, the gatlings jammed and the colonel dead, and the regiment blind with dust and smoke. The river of death has brimmed his banks, and England's far and honour a name, but the voice of a schoolboy rallies the ranks. Play up, play up, and play the game. Jochen Maur, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Daryl. Beautifully read, as always, and we're all thoroughly persuaded by it. Um, and thank you to all the speakers uh, for keeping to time when I know all of you had a lot more to say and we would have welcomed hearing a lot more, in fact. I can see uh, plenty of questions coming in, but I'm, I'm going to leap in with uh, a couple of comments first because I've been noting down endless questions to bring to you. But just to loop where we ended to where we started, Daryl, you've talked about uh, the, the persuasions of a particular kind of sentimental poetry, much lambasted by Orwell, that we cannot trust this good, bad poetry. But if I can come back to you, Dan, you began by, or you rather, you finished your section by beginning to talk about the style of oratory that we're now seeing with President Joe Biden. And obviously it's a very much a counter and a contrast to what uh, was espoused by his predecessor, the style of rhetoric that we became used to under Trump. Is there anything that we find suspicious or perhaps uh, difficult or problematic about the extent to which Biden is a poetic speaker, that he so frequently draws on uh, poetry, on sentiment? Uh, I know Fenton O'Toole has referred to him as uh, America's mourner in chief. Um, how do you find, how does that style of rhetoric, without speaking out of turn, how does that say, and what does it say about the current condition of the United States. Well, first of all, just just to say a, 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 a brief word about his predecessor. I mean, who knew that you could become the president of the United States without any obvious um, political experience or background in governing? And who knew that you could, you know, continue to have rallies uh, throughout the four years of his presidency, attended by huge numbers of people who, after all, remember, someone said, well, you know, no one wants to hear political speeches anymore. Well, that's not true in America because, uh, you know, I mean, 
there were times in the last few weeks of the campaign last year when uh, President Trump did five rallies in a day. And these rallies have a certain kind of pattern to them, which is, I haven't been to them, but I've, I've had lots of, of accounts of them from journalists who were there. And, you know, it's basically, you, you know, people queue up for hours, often in the heat or the rain or the cold, uh, to get into a uh, to one of these indoor stadiums and there's music, loud music for an hour. And then he comes on and speaks for an hour to an hour and a half and plays all the greatest hits. It's a bit like going to a rock concert. You know, you're basically, you're not going there to hear rhetoric that will, will sort of inspire you or lift you to a higher level. You're going there to hear the greatest hits, the hits that you've enjoyed hearing before and you want to hear them live, right? Uh, but 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 so so it is it is true that 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 uh, President Biden has consciously decided that he wants to. I mean, if you remember the phrase he used in the inauguration speech, we want to end these uncivil wars. Now the question is, can that be achieved? C can this sort of gentler, kinder uh, man, full of empathy and so on, can he manage to to bridge the gap? Between those who um, are, um, you know, who who who, uh, who find the Democrats to be scary and 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 dangerous because they've been told that this is what they are, can, can I mean, can he bridge that yawning chasm? I mean, after all, Lincoln, for all of his gifts, you know, did, didn't manage to prevent the Civil War. The Civil War, you know, broke out shortly after his. And I mean, I was I was going to quote there, and I'll quote it now. You know, Lincoln's first inauguration speech you know, which is delivered just on the eve of the Civil War. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. The mystic chords of memory stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and heartstone all over this broad land will yet swell the chorus of the Union when again touched as surely we will be by the better angels of our nature. Now, it's a, that's a fantastic speech. I mean, think of that, you know, the mystic chords of memory. Uh, stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave. And yet that rhetoric didn't actually win people over, even though it was probably published in every newspaper in, in, in America and people had time in those days to read newspapers. So the question is, can President Biden with his sort of approach, which is characterized by empathy, togetherness, um, you know, bridging gaps, um, you know, ending divides, can that succeed? against the, the rhetoric that we heard again this weekend at the CPAC, where, where you know, some fairly sort of um, strong speeches were made condemning the sort of approach that the Democrats have taken and that uh, President Biden has taken. So, but, but I mean, the key thing about, about um, uh, President Biden is that he, he does try to uh, in incorporate poetry, actually better poetry than poetry that was quoted there earlier, that, that was favored by Churchill. Because I mean, he, after all, the, po uh, the poem he uses most often now is Seamus Heaney's The Cure of Troy. And he did a marvelous video during his campaign where he read The Cure of Troy. And I mean, those lines that I really like are the lines, a farther shore is reachable from here. I think he's going to test that, that particular precept. Is the farther shore of a more harmonious and more bipartisan politics reachable? And can the rhetoric of empathy manage to make that journey to that farther shore? And that, I'm going to bring Ivana in uh, and then Alan, because I know we have to go to the questions. But I think, Dan, you're touching on something everybody has really begun to question. How much can speech persuade the subject? How much is the speech making the subject 
we heard a lot about citizens in what people have been saying tonight, as if citizens come fully formed and fully educated and ready to place their demands. But surely what we've seen with Trump is a cohort being fashioned, being created by the art of speech. Ivana, will I come to you and then maybe uh, we'll pick that up. Thanks, Eve. Yeah, I, I thought that what Dan was saying was very interesting. Uh, the ambassador was saying, you know, in terms of the differential style, the different, the opposing styles of Biden and of Trump, that Biden is a more um, collaborative style. It, you know, it's more bipartisan. It's less, there's less soundbite with what Joe Biden says. With Donald Trump, it's much more about the soundbite, the Twitter piece. And I suppose it's, it's really what I was trying to say. You know, I think that we have to redefine what we think of as oratory. And I know one of the, some of the questioning is about this, you know, there's this very masculine concept of the great orator, but actually that great orator who speaks in these, you know, snappy sound bites, it's really a gift to populism because of course it enables the decontextualization or, de you know, lack of context within a political speech, the example I gave earlier. So, um, so I think we have to be wary of, of that sort of oratory. Um, and then, you know, just listening to Daryl as well, thinking about, you know, the stories about the Nuremberg rallies and the oratory of Hitler and, and the sort of the huge, um, the huge impact that has. So I think we need to redefine it to look again at that more collaborative approach to oratory. Um, and, you know, I suppose just thinking about Joe Biden's inauguration, uh, Amanda Gorman, that was yeah. the most incredible oratory, actually, and the poetry and it was, you know, and there she was, a, a poet laureate who's so powerful. Uh, but I think also, you know, the, um, the seduction of the soundbite and so on, that really does, in, that really does invite a much less um, substantial political debate. And I think that's, that's really the danger. And I suppose that issue about restrictions on freedom of speech, you know, be, be, to be wary of private uh, companies imposing their restrictions while being mindful of the need for the state to ensure that there's a, a fair and equal platform so that there's a to control against abuses of free speech through curbing advertising uh, spend and advertising and so on i think i think it's a very difficult balance to exactly and of course uh, ivana you'll be aware of the irony that in saying the seduction of the soundbite you've given us this evening's soundbite but uh, but let me come on to some of the questions like i will pick up on on these points so could you wave at me if you want to jump in but can we go to this question that's come up with two questions that are related and one is about national traditions and the other is about gender. I know Lisa Doyle, I think, has come in. Hello, Lisa, with a question uh, 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 to, uh, to you, Martine, in fact, that you've touched on the ancient connection between rhetorical prowess and elite male identity to you or to any of the speakers. How are you seeing the, the gender roles play out in contemporary oratory? Uh, Ivana, obviously, you went back to Countess Markievicz. You raised the question of whether we do see a misalliance between ideas of political rhetoric uh, and gender. But is this something that has changed? Is it something that is intrinsic to the nature of political speech? Should we worry about it? Is there anything to be done about it? Um, I don't know who wants to come in there. Martin, have you any, any thoughts on that? Is it something happy to? All right. Um, um, do you, what to say in first instance? I, I think to some extent the problem is a problem of, of, of role models and the lack thereof. Um, and, and Ireland is actually, this is, we're ironically in a strange place with, with 
role models for, let's say, female pol political speech, um, because we've had two female presidents. Um, and, and despite that fact, the, the, what Ivana is experiencing and, and just the lack of, of like models is, is, to, is still experienced, I think, to some extent. And I'm not quite sure what we precisely what we do about that. Um, what, what, what always comes to me in the context of this um, of this question is the is the 2017 American election with Hillary Clinton and, and Donald Trump, uh, where gender was very much part of the of the discussion. I think and, and part part of the reason. So if you're thinking about ethos, uh, about character, and, and 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 just an authority, one of the problems was really that that. Hillary Clinton did have all the facts, but, but she didn't have the authority and, and, and so the public profile that make, made her likable. Um, and, and I think that is an, a problem that you, you see more often with female politicians where somehow we, we don't manage um, or, or there isn't a horizon of expectation uh, where female politicians have to fight twice as hard to, to get the same level of authority um, as male politicians. Thank you, and uh, I, I'm going to I'm going to turn that question around a bit because obviously this question of gender has come up, but another question has come in about national traditions, and and uh, we we heard from the ambassador at the beginning talking about both the strength of an Irish tradition, but also the gaps. Where is the great founding speech on independence? For whatever reason, we don't have it. But we also heard about Nehru. And that speech that's so aligned with the nation, where the individual can, in rhetoric, embody the whole of the public and national sphere. Now, is that something that we have lost in contemporary culture? That ability for one individual to speak for the body as a whole? Are we necessarily now reduced to fractured constituencies and, and, and the kind of partisanship that the ambassador kicked off with? Alan, I, I know your hand's up and you probably you're ready to answer the question from before this, but, but go ahead. Yeah, I was going to answer the question before, but I'll try and segue into that one, just because I think this question about gender is, is of absolute capital importance in thinking about rhetoric and how it how it works, because rhetoric is, from my point of view, it's definitely, it's a creative art, absolutely, but creative arts can have their downtimes and can get rigidified into rather stale genres that repeat the same kinds of gestures. And that can be a way in politics in which people's speech is controlled. If we have a set idea of what a speech is supposed to sound like and what a speaker is supposed to sound like, a certain gender, a certain class, a certain accent, a certain ethnic background, whatever, that, that can then become a way in which we cease to recognise that certain people are speaking politically. We don't hear them as, as political speakers. But I think that's not an argument against rhetoric, that's an argument for thinking both creatively about how one can create rhetorics that push against those generic restrictions, but also how we can create platforms, places, ways and means to hear and attend to different voices that are employing rhetoric in different kinds of ways. And that I don't think does speak to this national question, because part of what is happening is, of course, in lots of countries that yeah, the stability of national cultures is... Uh, 
weakening, partly because of general diversity, particularly because people are actually able to consume rhetorics from all kinds of different nations. One of the things that's happening at the moment that's causing a lot of problems for countries like the UK and Ireland is that rhetorics from the US that work in a certain kind of way, that question certain kinds of central authority and claim certain things about liberty don't quite work in the political contexts of European countries and cause all kinds of difficulties and problems. But again, that's a challenge then for rhetoric to think about, well, okay, how do we speak to audiences and bring them together in the way that Biden is trying to do? How do politicians learn to break out of certain stylized ways of doing political speech and hear how it is that people speak? Because part of, to go back to Trump, part of what Trump was very good at was speaking to people in a way that sounded like people speak and not in the rarefied, slightly stultified styles of, of white Washington politicians. Part of what we might like very much about Obama's rhetoric, for example, is how it echoed Lincoln's, how it echoed King's, how it sounded like a certain kind of formalized rhetoric, but that excluded an awful lot of people who had different ways of thinking and feeling and were not being addressed in that rhetoric. So there's a challenge for rhetoricians to think more about their own art, how they can speak in different kinds of ways, but also for citizens and those who broadcast rhetoric to find different kinds of voices, people who are speaking differently in different ways. Black Lives Matter, politicians like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are disrupting and reinventing the traditions and ways of speaking and should be given a lot of credit for that, I think. All right, in that case, so let me stay with you, Alan, initially, but other people can come in on this. I think a really interesting question from Amelia Pratt come in uh, on the topic of the prevalence of sound bites reducing rhetorical citizenship. Uh, but she discusses the art of persuasion and, and says, what do we really do about this? Is the use of the short tweet, for example, not just an effective new method, uh, an available means of persuasion in today's terms? Uh, we've had a lot of resistance to that lack of context that uh, Ivana talked about in a soundbite culture. But surely that is just as legitimate as a discourse and a replacement for the political speeches, the weighty rhetoric, the weighty masculine rhetoric, the brawling in the parliamentary chamber that a couple of you have touched on in the past. So I'll, I'll, I, I know I've got Dan uh, waiting to come in there, but Alan, do you want to comment briefly on that? Yeah, no, I can do. I think. Um... No, I agree um, with what Ivana said that speech doesn't have to be weighty and kind of masculine, but it should be it should have context and it should have reasons and it should have evidence to persuade people. It shouldn't just be a, the slogan can encapsulate something, but it has to encapsulate something. However, I'm going to disagree also uh, with Ivana because what she's saying is absolutely true of a medium like Twitter. One of the things I've been finding in my research is that an awful lot of social media carries uh, forms of rhetoric that are very lengthy, very weighty. People will will believe it or not watch hour-long, two-hour-long videos on YouTube, which are often just someone talking, giving speeches. They will watch recordings of speeches and lectures. I think there is a hunger, in a way, from people for that kind of longer form of discourse that fills out a situation, explains something about where we are, gives us some reasons for acting within it. Now, often that rhetoric is feeding into the kind of populism that, that people are worried about because it's making up for the ways in which soundbite-led official politics isn't giving people a sense and explanation of what's happening, why the world is changing and how we might position ourselves in relation to it. So there's a void there that is being filled, in fact, by certain kinds of long-form rhetoric, um, but in ways that mainstream politics needs to think about. All right, well, obviously, the question of length has surfaced and you know we think again of, of Orwell's dictum you know never use three words where one will do and, and perhaps we need to think about that a little bit in terms of what you're all saying but but let's bring in Dan do you want to get in on that again because obviously 
you know, you've become accustomed to using Twitter, you understand the context of the condensed form of debate, if it is debate, that we're seeing in public discourse at the moment. Is this a sacrifice of the art of rhetoric or is it simply an evolution? How are you seeing it? Yeah, well, first of all, I just want to give an amusing anecdote about, about uh, national traditions of rhetoric. I, I um, when I was in Germany as ambassador, I gave a speech at a concert we were holding uh, during our last European presidency at the concert house. And it was a full house of largely German audience. So I spoke in German. And uh, afterwards, one of my German friends said to me, you know, she said, um, you know, your German is great, you know, but really, um, and I, I always deliver with certain vim and vigor. She said, you know, but you need to kind of uh, calm it down a little bit because, you know, you're in danger of sounding like famous Germans from the past, you know? <laughs> so then I realized that actually the style of, of, of speech making that I was using in my kind of, my, my inimitable way, sort of reminded Germans maybe of something that was a little uncomfortable. That, so, so, I, so while I was, while my German was praised, my delivery was seen as a bit, a bit, a bit high in the octave range and needed to be sort of toned down a bit. That was a very important uh, you know, a lesson I learned. But just on the soundbite, look, even the great speeches, you know, the mystic chords of memory, um, you know, the, I mean, the lines that we remember from the great speeches could all fit into a tweet. Okay, now the question is, and, and by the way, the way I look at a tweet is that I was a press officer for eight years before I, uh, you know, became an ambassador. Um, I was in uh, foreign affairs and the Forum for Peace and Reconciliation and so forth in Brussels and in Dublin. Uh, and my specialty in those days was condensing all that briefing that I got from the department into a one-page uh, press release. And I see a tweet as a kind of a as a condensed press release, right? It's, you have to get the essence of what you want to say into a short, a very short space, right? But the point I want to make finally is to say that that I think those sound bites, you know, the mystic chords of memory, the better ends of our nature, I don't think you could compose those sound bites in the, you know, without the context. I, I think that 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 those kind of phrases that 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 resonate for the centuries in many cases would not be possible to put down into a tweet unless you actually, you know, you, you actually compose them as part of a, a more extensive, a more profound meditation. So I think that the, you know, the lengthy, you know, reflective speech will always be necessary in order to produce those kind of sound bites that could be put into a tweet, but which I don't think you could generate, you know, without the context of the major speech. All right. So I think that point is taken. It's something we'll all agree with. Ivana, you're trying to get in on that though a heckle yeah <laughs> that's a heckle yeah i really like that uh that bridging if you like you know that idea that you need the context and the substance there and then uh, in order to generate the sound bite and i like that because i think there is a positive as i said i mean you know i i'm an avid user of twitter and you know i do appreciate that it is and i see some of the questions putting that out great questions you know that this is that's just a more effective way of communicating your ideas. And if you have to be concise in doing so, well, that's a challenge to all of us in politics or anybody who wants to be, make a persuasive argument, but it's certainly not insurmountable. I mean, obviously it's up to us to make that, to provide the context and the soundbite. You know, it does, it is challenging for sure, but, but it, you know, but I think, I suppose when we're doing that, it's important that we also recognize that the importance of the collaborative, the to and fro debate that it's not just about this, these flourishes of, of rhetoric, even though 
they can come from they can come from the more reasoned and um, you know thoughtful presentation. I saw somebody asking actually Eve, about the you know climate change and has that generated any great speeches? And actually Mary Robinson has made some amazing speeches on climate change. And in fact, the last in real life great speech I heard was this time last year in Trinity um, at a, one of the HIST 250 celebrations. Mary Robinson speaking in the in the GMB actually about uh, the challenge of climate change. And it was very powerful rhetoric and there was substance there too, and plenty of sound bites that we all tweeted about afterwards. So that's a nice positive uh, reflection. Exactly, and it goes back, Ivana, to your opening point about the difference when you can see the audience and make that, that connection with them, that psychological connection. Daryl, you wanted to get in on the, was it on the sound bite? Uh, well, well, just just generally, uh, I, I I think uh, you know one of the words that's been used a lot in in and, and I probably did myself and, and all of us have um, is is the word persuasive and persuasion, and I I wonder whether this is the right word to use now. Uh, you, you know, Martin gave us the classic example uh, from, 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 from Julius Caesar with, with Mark Antony swaying an audience who were on one side when he began the speech and ended up on another side when he finished the speech because he persuaded them with the power of his rhetoric. And this is what we, it is said, the speeches are, are, are supposed to be able to do. Um, I see none of that. Uh, now, um, I, I have heard, and, and that's why I mentioned um, uh, 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 Congressman Nagus's speech in the Trump um, uh, 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 impeachment trial. Best speech I've ever heard made not a blind bit of difference, did not persuade anybody who was not already persuaded. Uh, uh, so, 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 so the idea uh, 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 that one can uh, uh, form the opinions of an audience through rhetoric um, seems to me to be quite a shaky one these days. Uh, it, it will confirm your opinions uh, if you already believe it, or it will it will revolt you uh, if you don't believe it. All right, well, Daryl, let me stay with you on that point because that, that's a real problem for us if you're suggesting that. And a question in fact has come in to you on that very topic, uh, which is from Philip Pearson. Um, and, and Philip is really asking, uh, obviously he's talking about politics going on in parliamentary chambers. What is the relationship between the parliamentary political speech and what happens at the ballot box? So you're suggesting the two don't have anything in common, that there's a gulf between them. There is no effective persuasion. And again, I'm using the term as Martine elaborated on it for us in classical rhetoric, but the art of persuasion has really been lost. And in fact, speeches, if they happen at all, they're for entertainment, but it's not affecting what goes on at the polls. Well, uh it is it is it is troubling and, and I, I'm probably overstating it uh, uh, but but uh, you know um, Alan uh, uh, you know used the phrase speech moments um, uh, to, to the term speech moments to, 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 to describe you know what, what we're talking about here and and, and, and I think that that's right you know Ivana has talked about a, 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 a discursive process in the actual uh, sort of formulation of, 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 of laws uh, where you know uh, people in a political chamber will back will argue back and forth and you know out of that uh, uh, something will come uh, but 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 I think you know the the uh, um, the, the, the the sense of um, uh, persuading or, or swaying an electorate um, you know Trump's famous phrase about you know, sh shooting somebody on Fifth Avenue and uh, and 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 getting away with it. 
um, uh, seems to me to have been borne out in, you know, metaphorically speaking, at least, uh, uh, um, uh, by, by, by his actions in, in the sense that, that there is at the very least a very significant uh, body of the electorate. And don't forget, you know, that Trump really lost the election uh, by fewer than 100,000 votes uh, in critical places. I mean, he, he, he got far fewer votes than, than Biden, but, but, but if 100,000 people or fewer had voted differently, Trump would have won that election. Um, uh, and, and so th there is a very significant part of the electorate, uh, which seems to me not to be open to, uh, uh, to, to the power of argument or persuasion in any way at all, at the, at the moment at least. Okay, and we've got lots of questions coming in about Trump, and yet, Daryl, we, we're in a, you know, the wake of uh, an impeachment trial, which was on that very point, surely, that words incited action, that words had a result. Martin, I know you've got your hand up, you want to jump in on this, and, and on persuasion generally, is it something we've lost? Yeah, I, I think maybe we never had it, would that be fair to say? So, um, we, we, we have this notion that in the past, um, rhetoric was the art of persuasion, but I, I wonder to what extent Aristotle was already wrong about that. But because many of the greatest speeches that, that we have from antiquity are, they are not persuasive speeches at all. It is, it is Demosthenes' speech on the crown, uh, where I think he, it, it, yes, it's, it's a court speech in a sense, but it's really a demonstration piece. Um, and the Gettysburg Address is epideictic rhetoric. It is, it, it's a funeral speech. Um, and the, the speech for Donovan Rossa, to come with an Irish example, is it's again, it's a demonstration speech. So it's always been the case, I think, that, that rhetoric has been to a large extent about sort of amplifying, uh, amplifying thoughts about community, about um, about community building to a large extent or community reinforcing uh, rather than persuading people to a different opinion than they had before. Um, and that starts all the way with Pericles' funeral speech in Thucydides, I think is the, the most famous example. Uh, and there's a whole tradition after that. Thanks, Martin. I'm going to bring Alan in at this point because I see a question that's coming from Jill Alwell. Jim Alwell. Jim, thank you for your question. I'll just adapt it if I may because it's really a question about education, if you've got different groups of people in a society and, and some are highly educated or well-educated, some are educated or not educated you know, to a different degree perhaps, how are you going to bridge that? And, uh, Alan, I want to bring you in again because it's again to go back to this idea of uh, a responsible public sphere, which as you pointed out, demands the act of speech uh, from its representatives. How much of the crisis, again, is because we do not have an educated citizenship which recognises and, and, and applies a kind of responsibility to public speech? That's a really great question. And I, I think there are certainly problems. I would say this as a professional teacher of political science, that there, there are problems with not enough people studying political science and having a, a full grasp of the complexities of issues that helps them judge the decisions being made before them. But part of what rhetoric ought to do is educate citizens. It should be a way of, we've talked about rhetoric very much as kind of, very much in terms of the emotions, I think, and the passions and the poetic sound bites, but it should also be explaining situations to people, helping people understand what's before them, the, the decisions they might take as a result of that, and then persuading them uh, in that way. And actually, I, to disagree with Daryl, I think rhetoric can be persuasive when it's doing that, and it may not do that in a single speech. 
it may not it may be that that takes place over a period of time where repeated rhetorical interventions in the in the case of the uk shift the way people think about the european union and the place of their country within it and that can be a quite a powerful way in which people are led to think about things in certain kinds of ways and part of the problem is that lots of mainstream politicians are not doing that anymore they're not it seems to me educating populations trying to explain where policies are coming from, why things are changing, why things are happening. And that's leaving that void for Trump and Farage and others who are taking quite a lot of time to meet audiences face to face to say, here's how, here's what's going on, here's who's doing it to you. An interesting point, I think. Uh, we're, we're, we're coming towards the end, but let me see if I can get both uh, uh, Dan and Ivana in very quickly. Dan, I'll come to you first, as concise as you can, please, and then we can get Ivana in as well. Oh, yeah. You know, just to say that in the election here last year, both of the candidates managed to persuade their electorates through their rhetoric. Uh, the Trump rhetoric was, I mean, even Trump's biggest critics here, people I know who are very critical of him and, and detest him, recognized that he found a way of communicating with people who had never been communicated with before. And he persuaded 11 million people who didn't vote last time for him to vote for him this time because he got 11, uh, 11 million more votes this year than he did in, in 20 or last year than he did in 2016. And, and likewise, um, Joe Biden, through his rhetoric of let's come together, let's go back to you know the better angels of our, our character and so on, he managed to get uh, the, the, uh, the biggest turnout ever for any candidate in any election in the United States. So, so here we have an example of how rhetoric, albeit not, not of the kind of, um, you know, of the highest level maybe in terms of its quality, nonetheless was very effective on both sides in getting people out to vote. So I think we have to recognize that. All right. <laughs> Ivana, you are our elected representative. Quite some faith in the art of rhetoric. Well, I'm going to throw in a contrary point, which is just listening to Daryl and others talk about what is persuasive to say, I think, you know, we have to also be aware of our own recent experience in Ireland in referendum campaigns in 2018 on abortion rights and 2015 on marriage equality rights. So what was most persuasive in the public domain was storytelling, was people's stories and experiences rather than any high-powered rhetoric. I'm just thinking, I can't think of one really incredible speech by any legislator or, or political figure. But what I do remember and I, what I know to have been the most effective thing, having been on, you know, in, very high, heavily involved in both campaigns, what was most persuasive was the stories. And somebody asks about citizens' assembly models. I was privileged to be part of the, the first constitutional convention and I watched as people's minds were changed because people stood on stage and told their stories about being the children of gay couples or about their own experience as a gay person in Ireland. And that changed people's minds. So I think, and just finishing, you know, the ambassador talks about Trump and Biden's rhetoric, but really, you know, it's also about the stories they were telling. Trump was telling a story about being for the small person, the disenfranchised against the elite. And Biden was, Biden's story as a personal story was hugely powerful and compelling in the end too. So I think we also have to reflect that it's about storytelling and personal experience now in, in political persuasion as much or maybe more than it is about oratory or sentiment. Well, thank you, Ivana. So it's stories, not speeches. Uh, and uh, on that note, as always, we never have enough time in behind the headlines, but we have to draw to a close. Uh, I think this conversation needs to be picked up and continued. Um, but at this point, let me uh, thank our speakers uh, for really, well, first of all, for all disagreeing with each other, which was, uh, was great, but for being here and giving up your time 
Ambassador Dan Mulhall, uh, Ivana Butch, uh, Alan Fenderson, uh, Daryl Jones, and Martine Kuypers. Thank you so much. Thank you to everyone who uh, sent in questions. I'm sorry we didn't get around them all, but uh, we've taken note of everything and some really excellent comments. I want to thank again our speaker, our sponsor, the Pollard Foundation, uh, and uh, the team at the Longing Hub, Francesco Raffi and Ethan King, as always, for, the, for their great work. We've lots of uh, interesting upcoming events at the Hub. Uh, on the uh, 9th of March, 7 p.m., you may want to join us for the launch of Trinity's new Center for Resistance Studies, very uh, exciting uh, venture. Uh, and there'll be a keynote lecture from Professor Ruth Ben-Giap of New York University, uh, How to Resist a Strongman, Lessons from a Century of Authoritarian Rule. We'll have registration uh, links for that on the website. So the Center for Resistance Studies on the 9th of March, and on a lighter note, uh, to mark St. Patrick's Day in our muted way this year, do join us for the Hub's discussion of the history of the Irish pub. Uh, that's at one o'clock on Friday, the 12th of March, and again, there'll be details shortly on the website. But we must draw to a close this evening. Thank you all uh, for listening and joining us. And I look forward to seeing you at the next Behind the Headlines. Good night, everybody. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. The rise of feminism. Here's to the next 10 years.